Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear and t-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Writers on Film, the only podcast dedicated to books on cinema. Hello and welcome to Writers on Film. My name is John Bleasdale. I'm a writer and film critic and today I'm going to be talking to Rachel Abramovitz and about and about her book Is That a Gun in Your Pocket? Women and Power in Hollywood. Uh, it's a book that I came across quite recently and it's a really excellent sort of panoramic view of the rise in power of a number of female directors, creatives, producers, up to studio executives and studio heads uh, throughout really the 80s and 90s. Um, it's, a, it's a great read and um, I thoroughly recommend it, as you can tell from my, uh, my conversation with Rachel. If you enjoy the episode, please remember to like, subscribe, try to spread the word as uh, far and wide as you can. Also to be noted, I have recently begun a Substack uh, newsletter, which you can uh, subscribe to. It's called John Bleasdale Writes on Film, if you want to search for it, or I'll try to put a link in the show notes so that you can click on it. And that way uh, you can get some essays, which I'm going to write about books uh, on film. I'm going to write about my own experience of writing on film and just basically 
um, a, a space for me to explore some ideas which I don't particularly want to pitch or editors don't particularly want to publish so uh yeah i'm not i'm not sure if i'm if that's the hard sell version of that but hopefully hopefully you'll find something interesting um you can follow me on twitter at dr john t d-r-j-o-n-t-y twitter seems to be around at least for another week so uh please follow me there if um if you like, uh, I'll, I'll see if I, you know, I've tried Mastodon and um, despite the unfortunate name and there are other places which are popping up a little bit like mushrooms overnight. But um, I think it's probably the case of six months or a year. We'll know what's going on and we'll see if something has emerged from the ashes. Some phoenix has emerged from the ashes. Great. Okay. So before uh, you do all of those things, the Substack, the Twitter, the liking, the subscribing, you have to first listen to the conversation. Well, it's interesting. It was... Um... Yes. I feel like the book came out too early. You know what I mean? It was, mm -hmm. it was, a little, it was too ahead of its time and uh, it would have probably had a bigger reaction, bigger splash if it had come out now. I mean, I do meet a lot of women who are in the industry who just love the book. Like it's like a real touchstone for them as because there really wasn't, and there still isn't any kind of, um, how-to guide. Not that there ever is a how-to guide, but it's very hard to imagine your life if you can't sort of imagine someone going before you and what they did. And just, it just gives a little context to how to move through the world. Yeah. Yeah. The, the pitfalls that others, you know, fall into. And, and I mean, that's what really struck me about the book is you deal with so many different uh, women, so many powerful women and, and women coming from different different place, different areas, different walks of life, you know, um, actresses and, and writers, directors, producers, and, and, and they all have such different stories. It's like, as you say, there's no one way of doing this. Right. I mean, it's gotten, a, you know, Hollywood's gotten much more um, streamlined, you know, fancy college into the, into the film business. So it has gotten more, you know, it's more industrialized now, even more so. And now you're sort of dealing with the algorithm, whatever that is, and IP. It's like a, it's like a whole. Even in the, in the years since the book came out, almost twenty years, um, it's really changed a lot. Also, there was no streaming mm. when the book came out, and so the sort of kind of collapse of TV and film together, like, you know, I was look. I think it is better for women in Hollywood, quite significantly better, but primarily in TV, but then again, a lot of film, except for the giant blockbusters and the indies have sort of disappeared. So it's, it's a different business. Could you tell me a little bit about the sort of the origin of the idea of the book, how, how it came about as a, as a project? It was very, uh, I, I worked for this um, movie magazine called Premier Magazine, which was around for a long time. And then it, uh, it's still online, but it collapsed as many magazines did. But I was right. I was really, really young. I had just come out to Hollywood and I sort of wanted this project where I could meet a lot of people. And I was always very interested in women's stories. I, I had a, I was a history major 
in college, but I focused on women's stories. And um, and so I wanted this opportunity to meet everyone in town. And this and it started off as an article, and then it became sort of a special issue. And uh, then after the issue, it was an oral history and this special issue. And then after that, I got approached by book agents. And then I took a long time to write it, a very long time to write it. Because I sort of felt uh, I changed it into an actually written book as opposed to an oral history. And that took longer. It doesn't surprise me at all that it took you so long because you just you cover so much. There's so much breadth and depth. You know, every chapter, it feels like you're dealing with four or five people, but in real depth. Yeah, it was, I mean, it was really great in the sense that I had a lot of access. I don't know if you could do that now. Had a lot of access and also uh, people's stories hadn't been so, they were sort of figuring out their own stories. You know what I mean? They hadn't gotten into their, you know, they hadn't gotten their rap down. Like this is my story and now I will tell it a hundred times. I remember very early on, I had a friend of mine's mother was uh, Gail Sheehy, and she pretty much told me one of the only really super useful things about interviewing, which is um, that you sort of enlist the subject, like you're on a journey together to discover their story. Like it's like a, a joint project as opposed to like the sort of adversarial, you tell me, I'm going to get this out of you. It's sort of like you're on an exploration together. And that makes it really interesting. Also, a lot of the women you'll see, a lot of the women are, you know, have lost a parent. And a lot of the women have been through therapy. So they were very interested in sort of like putting together the story of their life from a sort of psychological point of view. Yeah, it seems to be a little bit of a theme that runs through the book as well, that the sort of the idea of, you know, the more professionally successful they become, the less able they are to maintain relationships and 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 actually sort of, uh, or even or even sort of uh, initiate them because because the guys run screaming from the... Uh, <laughs> wow, I didn't think of it like that, but uh, I think it's always complicated when you're, you know, it gets more easier now because you're sort of people are used to being in peer marriages but it was it was different back then and i also think um you it's it was it's comp it's always a complicated thing when you're dealing with powerful when both parties are powerful and also both parties you know both parties want to work or both parties and a lot of times i remember one of the women saying oh you know you said she talked about um, it was she's like I love my kids. It's the husband that was the problem. The kids were never a problem. The <laughs> husband was the problem. Absolutely. I mean, one of the uh, examples of that sort of relationship, I, I guess, or, or you know, one of the difficult relationships is Peter Bogdanovich and Polly Platt, and that that's. Um, I mean, because the lines there are so blurred as to, you know, at a certain point you're sort of, th sort of thinking, well, uh, who's directing this film? And people around them are sort of thinking that as well. Well, I think it is really complicated. I think there is sort of this image of like a, you know, this heroic image as the film director with all the thoughts and all the thoughts come out of this one person and everything is in this vision, but it's, it's really a super collaborative process. I mean, there's so many decisions that go into being a filmmaker to making a film. Like there's like a thousand decisions every day. And I think one of the things is important when you're, uh, it's important when you're an artist is to have someone that you trust. 
You know what I mean? To have like a sounding board. Like I remember talking to Nora Ephron about this and she was like, you know, you have to find someone whose truth is your truth. Like, and she says, so like, I would never give my work to the guy who wrote Die Hard because he just would never like it. He would never understand it. His point of view would not be useful to me. And I think, I think Polly Platt, I mean, I think, you know, they're both kind of broken people and together they were very, very powerful. And it is always sort of a mystery about who did what. I mean, I think Polly really had a very visual sense and really, um, she really, like she designed all the movies, but she also designed them in a way to help where the camera was going to go. You know what I mean? She sort of like gave the canvas, but I, and, and, uh, and I also think um, bolstered his confidence and, and, uh, but it, it got very contentious. I don't know if you know about this. What happened is like, I initially had done an article about Polly. That's sort of how I met her. And then she became a, a, a staple in the book and I spent a lot of time with her, but sort of like has Polly's reputation improved in the, in the business, Peter's reputation declined and he used to get, and he get, eventually got really, really angry about it. And he gave this interview before he died about like how this was false and she had nothing to do with it. And, uh, and then his daughters got upset about that. And then there was a podcast recently about Polly, which was sort of generated by this kind of ongoing battle between them over credit. But Polly was an amazing woman. I mean, I think the thing about these women is like, um, now that I'm kind of more of a grown up, like when I was doing this, I was very young. <laughs> I mean, I was a grown up, but I was very, very young. And um, I just realized how hard it all was in a way that it's sort of like unfathomable. Like it's sort of, you you know what I mean? You sort of begin to understand how hard it is like to sort of you know, advocate your point of view to be the only woman in the room to sort of always get a discount because, and to sort of like, you know, the whole kind of like sexualization of your being, I think that did, you know, that was there all the time. I think the women who survived, like the women who are in my book, generally just sort of blinders, you know, you know, I remember Sherry Lansing just saying it's, you know, it's like a speck of dirt on your shoe. You just sort of wipe it off. Not to say that they didn't see it and that it didn't happen, but they just sort of developed a strategy for deflecting, diffusing, ignoring. Yeah, yeah, but you've you've got to wonder that there must be a psychic cost to that. That that all the all the men around them don't have to pay that. Yes, I think that's true. There was a psychic cost. Yeah, but also, I mean, you got to understand there was also there's something there's something fun about the earlier days when there are not so many rules. So there's kind of a loosey-goosey fun that was not always good. Obviously, some of it was horrible, but sort of like it wasn't so programmatic. People really were like, oh, I like this, so I'll make it. It's not like now it's very different. It's very much like the algorithm. I keep talking about <laughs> that, but really this sense of like this general thing that everyone has to obey, obey in some way. I never got a feeling that these, I, I got a feeling that this was a difficult environment to live in and they, they, they were facing incredible odds and, and still do face bad yeah. odds, uh, certainly. But there was also a sense that so many of these women just faced it with such fierce individuality. And I mean, someone like yeah. Elaine May is, is just like a force of nature and she's not, uh, you know, she's not messing about no. or taking any prisoners no. or anything. 
you just like the 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 amount of self-confidence and self-possession was is really extraordinary it just also because you you have to sort of on a daily basis someone's telling you you're, you're wrong or stupid and that sort of happens in hollywood all the time but like as a woman that's sort of like and you just sort of like no i think that uh yeah they're tremendously um I remember talking to Jodie Foster once and she described these women because she knew a lot of them. She knows a lot. Of them. A lot of them are dying. A lot of them have died since the book. And she described them as like, um, I'm going to get this slightly wrong. So it was but it was like rhesus monkeys, like the most aggressive people you're ever going to be. <laughs> like they're just going to be so aggressive. And you really do see that. It's the sort of like this drive that is incredible a lot of it fused. I mean, there's just so many people with like parents who have died that they're sort of like, like Sue Mengers and Don Steele and Sherry Lansing and Polly. I mean, just like almost all of them have come from single parent households. And that gives you a kind of um, like, if it doesn't totally break you, it gives you a ferocious quality of like wanting to have love and affection. And like, it's like a need that's sort of beyond just sort of taking over the world. It's it's a kind of psychological need. The number of strategies they have as well in terms of, you know, everyone has their different sort of strategies and ways of doing things. And some is like, I want to be the only woman in the room. I don't want to have uh, other women here. I want to be the Howard Hughes, yeah. Howard Hughes smart gal, you know. Yeah. Uh, not Howard Hughes. Who am I talking about? Howard the Hawks? Howard no. Hawks. Yes, of course. Howard Hawks. Yes, yes. You know, the sort of uh, angels have no wings sort of character and that kind of. I do think that was really much, very much a strategy in the beginning that a lot of women were very fearful of the other women in the room. There was like, um, there was a queen bee um, syndrome, but <laughs> I was listening to Adam Grant, who's this, you know, organizer, and he's, you know, he's a psychologist, studies business in America. And he just talked about this recently, which is, you know, everyone's always blaming the women for like being queen bees, but that's actually a reaction to a bigger system where they have no power. So they want to keep the, the little, tiny little power they have. It's sort of like the divide, you know, it's sort of like blaming the women. It's like, look at the men, divide and conquer. So I do, but I think that did definitely began in the nineties. It did change. I think people began to realize, oh, we can help each other. We can be each other's allies. And also people always want to have friends. You know what I mean? No one wants to like live in a world without friends. And, you know, usually if you're a woman, most of your friends tend to be women. Not always, but often. And it's kind of exhausting otherwise, because you're always sort of, you, you know, you've got nobody who you can let your guard down with. Yeah, well, you you have your male partners. And I mean, and uh, and a lot of the women had, you know, you know, if business partners, if not romantic partners, they, they were in a sort of, a, they weren't sort of by themselves, like, you know, like, you know, they had partners. Yeah. There, there are some like really um, impressive stories as well of sort of allies, if, if, if for want of a better word, uh, you know, so Spielberg seems to come out of it quite well as sort of somebody who is enc oh, yeah. encouraging and yeah, you should Penny Marshall. Yeah. You should do this Penny. You're doing it anyway. You should, you should direct. Yeah. You know? Well, he's always liked women and supported women. Like Kathy Kennedy started off as his assistant and now she runs uh, Lucasfilms. He's always, and like, he always seems to have in um, his producer now, this woman, Christy McCosco-Krieger, 
she started off as his assistant too. He 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 does. He likes very kind. He likes surrounding himself with like very competent, very um, not neurotic women. <laughs> but but that's all. Yeah. I mean, I think he doesn't really see. I mean, I think a lot of you'll see a lot of the same men show up over and over again as people who support women, like James L. Brooks, Spielberg. Um, it's like you sort of see this Geffen, you sort of see the same figures appearing as like, okay. And and um, and they're smart because the women are smart. <laughs> and also I think it's good to have, um, I think it's good to have multiple point of views as people are reading, understanding now that the market can just be bigger if you include all sexes, all races, everyone. Yeah, well, I mean, that's one of the things you make, the point you make at the very end of the book with sort of uh, James Cameron winning the Oscars for Titanic. And it's yeah. like, well, yeah, he, but, I mean, he's a big macho, kick of the world, but it's like, yeah. you just made a huge women's movie. That's why it's so big. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I know. He does. He's another one who likes, you know, Terminator 2. It's like Linda Hamilton. It's sort of like, you remember, you remember, obviously it's, you remember Schwarzenegger, but she's carrying the movie through. She's the heroine. I mean, I just remember, um, I think it was James L. Brooks who said this. Um, there is some, we were talking about broadcast news. I don't, I don't remember actually if he was talking to me exactly, but I remember reading this. can't remember if he told me or I read it, but it's interesting to see women go through situations that they're not supposed to be in or they don't expect to be in. Like in broadcast news, it's like, it's more unexpected if a woman does it because, you know, no one expects it and she doesn't expect it. So everything is new. And it's just a little bit like you can see they just did that in this movie tar. Like they put Kate Blanchett. <laughs> like if that was a man, you're like, I'm not, why am I going to watch this? But because it's a woman going through the same thing, it all seems new and different and provocative. Mm, yeah, exactly. It's sort of like her her role is essentially the toxic man, but without being yeah, the man. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, when you when you started doing this, then who were the first people that you were approaching, and um, and and did you get close? Did, I mean, it sounds like you you know we're talking about you, the advice you got. You, it sounds like you you sort of have had to get quite close to to some of these women. I got very close to Polly, and I got close. To, I spent a lot of time with Sherry. I mean, I think the sort of the way because I'd done this article for Premiere, I'd met a lot of people, and so what happens in Hollywood is you get one or two people big people. And then you can, everyone, then, you know, when you're doing reporting in Hollywood, one of the first things people say is who else are you talking to? <laughs> and so, and uh, so I started, I mean, very early on, Sherry came aboard and she was always incredible to me. She's nothing but fantastic. And, and I just, and I also became very good friends with Polly who ended up living down the street from me. So that also, um, there's, those were the two. And then there were a lot of people, I mean, a lot of people were incredibly generous and a lot of people like, and sometimes I just waited people out, you know what I mean? Or I would, um, I waited people out. Like I remember trying to get Streisand. That was sort of like a campaign, like, you know, so-and-so, you know, you have to get people to recommend you and say this person's okay and get people, you sort of like, or Sue Mengers, like Sue Mengers was, um, I would, she was difficult, but she was great, but she was like, you would show up at her house and it was, you know, I realize now she was very depressed, 
but she, sometimes he would talk to her and she would, and then suddenly she would sort of revive and be incredibly charming and funny. And then she, you know what I mean? But sometimes I definitely, uh, and, you know, I think as in the nineties, I think a lot of people like Sue kind of didn't like women when she was coming up. And then when she was retired, a lot of the women turned up and were her, like her best friends and sustained her. And the same with Don Steele. Like Don Steele, you know, was famous for like, I don't have any women friends. Why would I like women? They're not useful to me. And then when she died, it's like, you know, the women who showed up and who are pallbearers. And I think it just sort of was like, sort of began to happen in the 90s. Like Don and Sherry were always kind of pitted against each other. This is Don Steele and Sherry Lansing. So they were vying in public opinion to be like the first woman to run a studio. And so, and they were very, they sort of, you know, in actuality, they're not that different. They're like fatherless Jewish girls, you know, but in, in um, persona, they were very different. Like Sherry is very, um, very polite, very warm, very um, like, her her front was very um, feminine, like traditionally feminine. I'm saying her front. She's also incredibly like watch her feet. She's like <laughs> like she's ferocious. Don's Don shtick was like, you know, I'm gonna outboy the boys. I'm gonna be the crudest, the most obnoxious person I can be. And so, and then they were. Um, so Sherry became head of. Um, she became president of production at Fox in the eighties. And then Don became head of, uh, Columbia in the early nineties. Um, but they were always pitted each, I mean, pitted against each other in the psychology. And they also worked together in the eighties in, um, Paramount. So Sherry was the, um, she was a producer on the lot and Don was the head of production and Sherry. And there's like this famous story where like Sherry gave Don the script for fatal attraction and Don had just gotten married and she literally threw it at Sherry's head. She's like, this is not man cheats. And, and it's just sort of like, you can, it was funny. It was funny. They were, but afterwards, after they went, they, you know, they were like frenemies. They had to work together. Like Dawn had this very insane baby shower. She had the first power shower in the world where it's like he had all the women and like Polly Flat did. She wanted to have all the men that she had slept with. And they like had just crazy. And then and Barbara Streisand and like um, sang the music for it. It was like a power shower. And uh, I guess someone was describing, you know, Dawn is just being, you know, her videos, like all the men she slept with saying outrageous things. And Sherry's like, la everyone was so surprised that Sherry was there laughing away. But uh, she, and then later on, Donna Cherry became incredibly close friends. Just really, really close friends. It's so, so interesting, that chapter that you write um, the, uh, about fatal attraction, because there's a real debate about that. And I didn't know that whole thing about the ending changing and being initially sort of like the, there was an argument that it was kind of even handed and, you know, Glenn Close was as sympathetic as Michael Douglas. And then by the end, it was, it was sort of like kill the, the femme fatale, you know? They're remaking all of these movies now. You know, they're doing a TV series of it. And I think that one's a very interesting one because, um, you know, after it was a huge sensation. And after it came out, um, Susan Faludi did a, you know, her book, um, 
backlash was brilliant in sort of analyzing how they how the script had changed and that's a, actually a very common thing that happens in Hollywood is like the scripts change and like the it used to be the female character gets smaller and the male character gets more heroic but <laughs> and that's totally true but at the end of the day in fatal attraction what you're really what you're remembering and is Glenn Close. That's that's the that's the thrill of the movie is her being, you know, her being murderous, her being this kind of villain and just wanting what she wants. And she gets punished in the end, but she wants what she wants. And so there's a complex, it's a kind of complicated message. Cause I don't think I do think that's sort of why people like the movie, because it's big and she's explosive. But she wants punished at the end so there i mean all this it's like it has two things that are true at the same time yeah yeah it just reminds me of a, an old-fashioned sort of femme fatale, fatale thing that, that the they're the usually the most interesting person in the film but at the same yeah. time yeah they, they're they're going to go to hell yeah <laughs> they're not yeah yeah but you know that's where you put female desire in the 1940s and and the 1980s apparently <laughs> yeah 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 I mean, it's so interesting. And then, and that movie really did come out of Sherry Lansing's id. That was sort of like, I mean, it's it's like she really like related to that. And and uh, and I do think this is one of the things that's interesting is a lot of times in the, in the movies that they made, you sort of see these women's ids kind of come out, what they're interested in. I mean, they go through the Hollywood system. <laughs> they get, you know... The same thing with flash dance. People think flash dance is you know, not the most feminist movie in the whole world. But you know, when I was 18, I loved it. And you know, people love the music. I mean, it's sort of like all these things, they have mixed messages. So you're kind of receiving them in a very innocent way as well. I mean, I grew up in the 80s, so I was receiving all of these films as as just you know, finished products. I wasn't thinking of, yes. of the <laughs> development or evolution of the ideas. And it yeah. it was just sort of like, oh, wow, that that's what always would have happened in that story. Not, it could have yes. gone this way, it could have gone that way, you know? <laughs> totally. You, you sort of accept what they tell you without thinking too deeply about it. And sort of, you know, you want something that makes you feel something. You don't want, you want to have an emotional response mm, yeah that's often the that's that's uh i think behind all this idea that you know oh you've ruined my childhood by doing x y or z to the remake but it, yeah. it's just like no if you go back to those movies and watch them again you know you'll probably look at them in a different way anyway yes that's true it's the same with don't meet your heroes because they'll be disappointing <laughs> Um, I mean, one of my heroes in this book, who who you did slight, I did feel slightly disappointed with, was uh, sorry going back to Elaine May because I love her movies. Um, I love um, Mickey and Nikki and um, yeah. uh, a New Leaf, and I I even love uh, Ishtar. I think Ishtar's yeah. a, a brilliant, very funny film. Um, but yeah, the making of all those movies and Elaine May. I mean, you have somebody say that she puts back the the, the case yeah. for female directors a decade because she's just so impossible to deal with. I just, I think some of the stuff I would, I think that's all true, but there's also a level of sexism about it all. You know what I mean? And that's changed. I mean, I was sort of, you know, that, you know, that's the problem is like people, men and women can be difficult. And film directors usually have to be have some kind of 
fierce stick to your own guns because everyone's going to tell you, you know, it's like when you're an artist, you really don't have anything except this is my point of view and I think it's right and I think it's going to be good. There's no, there's no like it's going to sell 10, 20, you know, 20 widgets and don't worry about it. It's basically your, and so you're, I, I think that Elaine May uh, was nutty, but she was also living in a time when people wanted to um, minimize her, but she did have a lot of support. She had a lot of friends and she had a lot of artists who believed in her and supported her. So, I mean, the thing is, it's sort of like you see about Streisand, like, um, you know, she is, she can be very demanding, but she was also in a time when people didn't want women to direct. I mean, she's a movie star and a great. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Star, so that sort of changes everything, like changes how everyone behaves. But there's also like, and I think she, I think that, um, so both things can be true. <laughs> they can be difficult and they can also be facing kind of a, a level of, discouragement from the environment mm. and I think the thing I I always thought about Ishtar is like you know how many di- male directors have flop- yeah. flops which are equivalent but you know Scorsese had a bunch of flops and he's he's carried yeah. on you know even Spielberg in 1941 yeah but he, yeah. he comes back with something else um and it's not like it's not you don't go to director heaven uh, quite so quickly if you're a bloke no, you don't. But I think some of it, it, it gets, um, yeah, it's, you can, uh, you don't, you don't get sent to director jail so quickly, but I think it is also just very like failure on a big, big screen, failure in a big way where everyone's seeing you fail. <laughs> I think it's really hard to come back. I mean, I think it's just a really challenging, um, it's just hard. Mm. It's brutally hard on your psyche. And, mm. you know, you have to be a very strong person to like, I'm going to get on a horse again. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, one of the the, the characters, characters, it's a real person, of course, but what are, no, I feel like the characters too. <laughs> but it does, it feels like a, one of those, a, a sort of Russian novel in some ways that you just yeah. a cast of thousands and uh, um, it, it, it is Jodie Foster, the, the, uh, yeah. she's sort of coming through the system as a child uh, actor and and then she wants to direct but to, but she, the, uh, you know this whole horrific thing about the guy who shots Reagan oh, and yeah. 
it's just unbelievable. And she had conversations with him on the phone and was like, uh, yeah, just. Uh, I know you can't, it's like the life. You can't really believe it's one person's life. It's so crazy. And so, um, yeah, I think it's, I think she's, she's another one who's incredibly strong. I think she's very good at, um, drawing boundaries, you know, that, that experience makes you draw boundaries, st- very strict boundaries. And like, she's also like super, you know, she grew up, she, you can tell that she had been a child actress because she's very like, you know, cross your T's, dot your I's, don't be pretentious, don't be a narcissist. Like when she's on the set, she's one of the crew. She's very aware of where, of like, she's just, she's uh, aware of where the actor, you know, she's, I don't know if you've ever met other child actors, but they can, there's a part of them that still has the little bit of like, I was a child actor. I'm going to sing for my supper. It doesn't always come through, but there's, I've noticed some other ones that it's a little taint, you know, some old part of their personalities, but she's a brilliant woman and she is. uh, Yeah. It's just like the the muscle memory is already formed and they, no matter how old they grow, they can't get out of that. Um, yeah. It slips back in. Yeah. And they also want to, and it's hard. It's hard. I mean, you know, who has a career that long? Like seriously, who has a career from five to almost 60, like pretty much straight through. I mean, that's a kind of an incredible achievement. And she's, and, uh, and there wasn't always, you know, before the accused, you know, it wasn't totally not clear. She was going to, make it to the next level. Oh, absolutely. You, I mean, that, that was a really interesting point that, that she, it's, first of all, people have thought, sort of think her career is in the doldrums and it's, it's maybe fatally gone. And then the, the difficulty she has in getting that part and, and so the, the horrendous sexism of, uh, of some of the men who say she's not rapable enough for the role. I know it's outrageous, isn't it? It's it's pretty outrageous. I mean, you know, I don't think it's an accident that you had a very powerful female producer coming off a giant hit to kind of like, you know, all the, they're very, I mean, you know, Sherry's very, very uh, fierce. Like she has, you know, her persona was very pleasant and cheery, but she, you know, She'll just, you know, keep going for what she wants. And it's also that that situation, I think, of... Um, uh, uh, I, I watched um, Looking for Mr. Goodbar recently, the Diane Keaton Oh, really? How does that hold up? Oh, it's tough. It's a really tough watch. Um, but I think it's... I kind of think it's... I think it deserves a sort of re... Uh, you know, being rediscovered. I think it sort of disappeared from the conversation. I think it has a lot of very interesting things to say. I mean, it's it's obviously dated, but in a way, it's like exactly what you said earlier. Uh, it, in a way, it's a film that really takes uh, female sexuality very seriously and at the same time punishes the woman for having that sexuality or or at least yeah. in this misogynistic society yeah. she lives in so i i would i would yeah. go to bat for it to tell you the truth i think it's and her performance yeah, is amazing yeah i would like to i would like to see that and uh you know it's got a richard gear and uh who else is in it who's very young tom berenger 
yeah has a very you know and it's all and even that bit even the in terms of the murder it's all about sexuality because he's um he's someone who wants to deny being gay he's he's pushing against that which is uh yeah it's it's a it's a it's a it's a dark film i would i would yeah but i was thinking of that in terms of the accused as well of the sort of reluctance of people they don't want to approach the subject matter and even in terms of sort of actresses don't want to put themselves in that situation for, for you know genuine reasons for valid reasons yeah i mean you know people um that's still hard for people to accept like you know you don't you know victims aren't going to be perfect victims they're going to be flawed individuals and that doesn't mean that they haven't been victimized and i think it's like it's a constant it's like it's old as you know it, it never totally goes away and it's not like um you know hollywood actresses yeah i mean i i think also jodie foster is just really really smart i mean a lot of these careers that survive for a long time I mean, some of it is luck and like what you get offered, but also some of it is like picking parts that will allow you to shine that are not necessarily the most obvious things. Because, you know, if you're Leonardo DiCaprio, you're going to get all the best parts or whoever is the person of the moment. It's sort of like when you're trying to get there, it depends on who you meet and who you like. She's a very, very smart woman. And also, like you wonder, I mean, and also she knows what it's like to be victimized. I mean, she'd been through that, and so there's like you wonder, like that wasn't, you know, she'd been through that with Taxi Driver, she'd been through that with Hinkley, she'd been through that kind of metaphoric. Well, it wasn't metaphoric, but I'm saying it's like she had things she could tap into. Mm. Mm. But just the, even the process of having to film that scene, you know, it, there's a bit in the book where you refer, you talk about it taking a week and every night she goes out to nightclub to dance because she has to get, it's almost like an act of defiance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, 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 just a, a stunning sort of context to the, to, to, the, to the whole process. It made me really want to go back and watch the film as well. It, it may sound like an odd thing to say, but to sort of rediscover because again i think the accused is a film that's slightly i don't know just with the wealth of stuff that that happens at certain films for no fault of their own just sink a little bit below the waterline yes sometimes yes exactly well it's it's a tough film you know it's not going to make you feel good at the end so it's interesting what movies survive it sort of tells you what is like the zeitgeist of the moment like what is the, you know why things are popular like you know why are they bringing i mean they're basically remaking the entire 1980s catalog at paramount like you know uh, american gigolo and fatal attraction and it's sort of like but now they're totally you know it's a different cultural climate it's a different you know the, the sexual mores have all changed it's basically it, it's interesting i don't know if they're just doing it because hollywood's obsessed with ip and it seems safe to do ip over and over and over again but they they lose their uh they sort of take their i don't want to it seems a lot of times they take the idea and then completely miss the point of the movie <laughs> or the way if they redo it, they don't understand what the point was. Yeah, or they slavishly reproduce a sort of the Top Gun like remake where yeah. it seems to have that beat of the original film in every, you know. With a... It was like being in an 80s movie again. It was so crazy. It was like, wow. 
And I guess people just really like the feeling of the 80s and it's fun and it's happy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then, you know, I don't know, I, I, a lot of people, uh, I was, I watched the, the screening in Cannes of uh, Top Gun Maverick and the guy behind me had already seen it twice. And I was like, well, how the hell did she see it twice? It's in a press screening in London before Cannes or something. And, uh, and you, you know, it was just, a, was a complete fanboy. He just loved it, loved it already. And it was like, I, I, I was kind of saying, well, for me, Top Gun was one of those films um and I think this is true of a lot of 80s films. They're so, sort of movies for people who don't necessarily want to go to the movies. What does that mean? Well, sort of like my brother would never go to the cinema, but he'd go to the cinema to see Top Gun because it would be almost like a sporting thing. It'd be like, you know, oh, yeah. airplanes, you know? Yeah. Well, there is. I mean, I think that's why the event movies are going to survive because <laughs> people want things that feel really, 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 really big mm. that they can enjoy with other people. So as you as you, um, uh, you you go, you go through to the nineties and you're having you know and, and things are changing and you're you're kind of observing part of this sort of a ground zero really. Um, after you finish the book, when you when you're looking ahead, I mean pre Me Too and everything, uh, how are you seeing things develop uh, in terms of women's position in 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 the industry? Well, since the book came out, I mean, I think it's. Uh, it's gotten much better in the sense that there are a lot of um, there are tons of executives who are women. There just are a ton. I mean, you know, I, when you look at the statistics, I looked at that before. I mean, you know, uh, what do they have? And twelve percent of women film film directors in two thousand and twenty one, and that's not that much better. It was like five percent or seven percent. So. That's not so good. I mean, TV's definitely gone to be about 30% of the behind the scenes is women. And that is significantly better. But films are sort of, it's just like, I think part of the problem is like the kind, you know what I mean? There are just many, many less films being made, just dramatically less films being made. And so and each one is, you know, part of IP. And uh, I mean, I think, I mean, I, What's interesting, I was looking up, uh, I was looking up at the, I was trying to figure out the production, the the administration chart of Paramount. This was just the other day. So now you have, you have Sherry Redstone who inherited, but then it's bare, it's still like a bunch of white guys. I mean, you really like maybe one or two brown faces, one or two female faces. And I sort of feel like above a certain level, it's still kind of all all guys. I mean, it's definitely, you know, you have women in very powerful positions, but not at the not at the David Zosloff, Ted Sarandos, not that position, except for Sherry Redstone, who inherited it. So I mean, and that's I mean, so and but I do think one of the things that has changed is like it's much more like you would never. Very, you would never do a movie that had no female characters, no female, you know what I mean? It's sort of like they would just never make a movie like that now. It would seem weird to have a movie that's just, I mean, they do, obviously they do, but people are very cognizant. It's like, oh, we have to have some kind of gender and diversity. They're sort of aware that that's good business. It's not necessarily good politics, good business. Mm, yeah, I mean, I think that's that that 
feels like I mean, I've got two daughters and they watch a lot of movies with me and, and everything. And uh, it feels like, well, one example was like Game of the Game of Thrones during the course of the, of that the run of that show the 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 way people were watching it and criticizing it changed radically you know yeah. the first season people were like oh great okay you know fantasy yeah. woohoo yeah. and, yeah, yeah, and by yeah, the yeah. end of it it was like we don't want that showing we don't want this we were against this no. that's a cliche that's a trope and it became so critical and i was thinking Guys, go back and watch the first season. It was it was never no. that you know great in terms of it. No, no, times have definitely changed. It's very, very. I mean, and that's sort of what the thing about me too that's fascinating to me is that it sort of um, obviously it made things you know a lot of bad things came out, but I think it also for some reason it sort of it just didn't it just didn't stay in like the lane of bad men, men behaving badly, it sort of moved into like, oh, let's get all the, let's get the pictures better. Mm. Let's hire more people. It's sort of like one of those sort of watershed moments where, where change accelerated in every way. I mean, as I say, you see it mostly in TV that moves faster and you can, you know, you can have a show with like, you know, a writing staff where it used to be all men. Now you can have the show and it's half women and people of color. I mean, that moves faster, but that's definitely moved. And I do, and for some reason, like the reckoning about Me Too, like that turbocharged everything. I mean, maybe it would have happened otherwise. I don't know, but it definitely is like, it's a turning point. Mm. And I mean, like in terms as well of sort of like uh, working environment, just the atmosphere of, uh, you know, someone like Scott Rudin or some, uh, is it Scott Rudin who was accused of sort of bu- bullying, toxic sort of environment and what? And that, and I mean, that, I I read all those Peter Biskin books where people were throwing throwing things around. I mean, it was like, it it was documented. It wasn't like, uh, oh really? Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. it was like. Yeah. But, but in a way, that's great that we're questioning why, well, why does that really make a film better if the guy at the back is terrorizing his staff? Yeah. 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 No, I mean, it does. It's, it's, it's changed. It's changed a lot of things that I didn't expect it to change. It's sort of, it's interesting because all the women that I wrote about, they just endured, you know what I mean? They just endured or, you know, some of them left the business, but the ones who, you know, the ones who are in the book, they endured. Or they turned it on. A, yeah, they persisted. They ignored. They they just dealt with it. I I, I mean, it's a, a sort of thought experiment, I guess. But I just wonder what those same women would have done if the environment had been less hostile and they had been, you know, allowed more the power. I mean, there's a moment in your book where you talk about. I think it's Sherry Langsing who. She is made a head of production, but there's a guy who's kind of got, even technically should be beneath her, but he's yes. actually countermanding all her stuff and she doesn't have yes, the power. That was sort of, that was like a, just a terrible mind fuck. Like she was brought in to be head of production and she was touted, oh, we're so modern, we're so great. And then she's never given real power. And she's, I think, I mean, that happens a lot in Hollywood. That just, I mean, that's a very, uh, but that was particularly toxic. <laughs> Yeah, let's get sort of kick somebody upstairs rather than uh, yeah yeah. Well, there's always this theory that you know women get the top job when things are going badly. 
and then they're, you know what I mean? I don't know. That's, I think, probably from 10 years ago, but. Have you have you ever thought of doing a follow-up book or, or updating the edition, you know, append a, a sort of epilogue and. Uh... Uh, yeah. Or just a sequel uh, or a sequel even. Sequel. Um, you know, it's very emotionally exhausting mm. to do these books. I mean, when you talk, you do, you know, it's sort of like you're maintaining relationships with people over a long period of time. And um, even if you really like them, you know, it's not, it's not like you're not their friend. Mm. I mean, maybe afterwards you can be their friend and you're honest, but there's always like the thing, the book, the thing that's hanging over. And it's just like, you know, I, uh, I'm not that cold a person. I mean, so maybe, mm. you know, maybe I wouldn't be Janet Malcolm, but, you know, I get wound up about the people and what's going on. And, and you know, it's it's just, a, it's just an emotional minefield to keep going on it. How, how did they react when the book came out? Uh, uh, most of them were thrilled, except my, <laughs> I, was, I had little children and I was there. It was like a Saturday and I was there with my um, husband and my husband picks up the phone. It was landline, so picks up the phone, and he's like, "Yes, yes, yes." And then he and then he hands me the phone. I'm like, "Who is it?" He says, "I think it's Barbara Streisand," <laughs> <laughs> and she began just like crazy yelling at me, like she was upset, and and I was just like, "Look, I was just saying, like, read it. I really think you're overreacting. I really, really think you're overreacting." But it was, you know. It was a story. <laughs> Barbara, Stry- <laughs> Barbara Streisand overreacting. No, no, I don't believe it. I don't believe it. I don't believe yeah. that's ever happened. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Well, she, you know, I think she would, I thought, I've been thinking about her because I, I was thinking about A Star is Born and how she had wanted to direct it herself and then how like John Peters had sort of like, she was very, had a very, um, complicated relationship with her own ambition then it's sort of like she wanted john to do it she was through john and john was using her and she wasn't confident enough to do it herself but she wanted to you know pick and arrange and or you know i just think it's sort of like you're thinking you the one hand you see it as like a woman driving each other crazy people crazy other hand you see it as like a great artist who doesn't have the confidence to direct herself so it's all kind of leaking out in this other way i mean it's sort of like but she also is very demanding, <laughs> like all the story. I mean, but I think the thing about Streisand is people genuinely like her. So she has real friends. So you sort of feel like, okay, she can be difficult, but she has real friends. Some of these people are difficult and don't have real friends. And those are the people you should be wary of. Mm, I had a friend once who met Nina Simone. He was working as a waiter in a uh, in a Swiss hotel and the um, Nina Simone was there and he, he went up to her and said, oh, Miss Simone, you've such wonderful music i have to thank you you've given such joy to my life and she turned around and said just get me my fucking coffee (laughs) and and the thing is he tells that as like you know as he's so happy about about it because it's because of course nina simone said that of course she did what were you expecting yeah yeah i mean you know you're a great artist yeah yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Oh, it was such a fantastic read. I'm so, I'm so pleased. Uh, it really. And the other thing that I think, you know, I referred earlier to the Biskin books about, you know, the uh, Easy Riders and Raging Bulls and Down and Dirty Pictures and that. 
you know, they're great reads and, and all the rest of it, but, but you could read those books and just think it's a boys club and just think there's no women around except actresses and they just don't sort of have much of a role. And reading your book is a real corrective to that because, you know, there are, and, and they're behind some of the big, the big films. You know? Yes. It's a corrective, but his are also true, especially, um, especially easy writers ratings from polls. I mean, that really, I mean, the problem about the second book is like, doesn't have Harvey's, you know, sexual predatory nature. And so you can't, you sort of feel like what's actually going on. It's like, it's sort of a nightmare. Like it's like the journalist's nightmare that you have either missed something big <laughs> and everyone, you always live in fear of that because totally could happen. Because it wasn't like that. That wasn't like a story. Everyone assumes like everybody knew and you sort of kind of like, you knew, I mean, I didn't, I had like only one dealing with Harvey my whole life. Um, but you kind of knew in the sense of like, I thought maybe prostitutes. That's what I thought. I did not think, and that's just me being naive, but uh, no, I do think women, you know, no one wants to live in a world where there are no, you know, we all want to live in a world where there are men and women. It's just more interesting world, more accurate world. And I do think the book, I mean, I think, I think this is the reason why the book still resonates is because it's very hard when you think like you look at, scenarios and there are no women there and you're like how could I possibly like go into politics or go into business or go into it's sort of like and you know and Hollywood has always been you know it's a like before it's become so codified it just was a little bit more like if it's a ship he was a ship salesman and then it became a movie director I mean there's always been a little bit until recently more fluidity of like the way people got in the business and that and also you know the other thing is as development became more important, a lot of women read and were willing to read. And that was an avenue. I mean, they don't even call them D girls anymore. But when I came to Hollywood, they called them D girls. Now you would say that's totally sexist. But that's the way a lot of women got into the business. It's like they were close to material. They could manage material. They could, you know what I mean? And that was sort of an avenue that people got in. The good argument for the Bechdel test is the world passes the Bechdel test, so movies <laughs> should pass the Bechdel test. Definitely. <laughs> yeah, it's, Definitely. It's, it's funny. It's <laughs> not an outrageous proposition, is it? <laughs> uh, Rachel, thank you so much. I'd love uh, one last question, which is, uh, yes. have you got a book that you can recommend for our yes. listeners? I do. You probably have already done this book, but I love this book, mm. which is the uh, the Big Goodbye Chinatown in the Last Years of Hollywood. Oh, Sam by, um, Watson. Yeah, I think it's one of the best books ever about Hollywood, and it really I learned so much about it, and it really kind of it's very hard to kind of capture the creative process, and I thought that really got into it. And also, I mean, I don't know if you've read the book. But just the fact that Robert Town had a collaborator, a collaborator, a, he worked with this guy who was basically <laughs> a co-writer and who's been totally written out of history. And you're like, wow, that's crazy. That's totally crazy. Especially because Robert Town is like one of the, you know, like William Goldman, he's like the screenwriter yes. god. And it, it's like, yes, hang on a minute, totally. you just did half of it? Yes. Yeah, yeah, it's shocking. It's, it's like... Muhammad Ali had another guy in the ring hitting the guy. <laughs> yeah, I know, it's, it's so crazy. And and you realize like so much of Hollywood is like myth-making, like personal myth-making, like I'm the genius, like the way, and like that's sort of the Peter Pogdanovich poly stories. Like he was like, I'm a genius, I'm a genius, I'm a genius, I'm a genius. 
wait a minute, all my movies fail when I dump my wife. Hmm, maybe there was other people involved. <laughs> I guess who? Absolutely. And so uh, Sam uh, was on our po- the podcast uh, yeah. um, last year, I think, and he's going to be the, our guest. So when we're recording this, he's going to be the guest before you, before this episode. Um, so it's good. Because he has a new book, yes, right? Yes, he's just done a book called Hollywood and Oral History, co-authored with a woman, would you believe, his very own Polly yeah. Platt. No, it's uh, Janine Basinger. Um, oh, she's fantastic. Yes, yeah, she's amazing. <laughs> the Star Machine, what a wonderful book that yeah, is. Yeah. yeah, she's an amazing woman also. No, I think he's really, really excellent. I also like this book called Competing with Idiots. Have you read that one? No. About uh, Oh, it's great. It's written by this guy, um, Nick Davis, who's the grandson of Herman Mankiewicz. Oh, right. And, and it's about, it's kind of grandson of Herman Mankiewicz, grandnephew of Joseph Mankiewicz. But it really, like, it really is very psychological. Really, like, she really, like, he. it's just like, great psychological portrait of these two men and that that was good ever since i've started doing this podcast i've, I've read so many great books about film but i think there's a there's a little bit of a renaissance going on at the moment i think there is uh, some great writers writing writing some great history and great biography and great criticism so i've been very fortunate in that but and 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 rachel i really hope uh, i I'd, I'd love to see uh, another another take on the industry from yeah. you as well if uh if it's not too psychically costly well no i mean just have to get myself to do it <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much rachel okay. take care thank thanks you. again bye So that was my uh, conversation with Rachel. Um, her recommended book was The Big Goodbye, The Making of Chinatown by Sam Wasson, who was on the podcast an episode ago, two episodes ago. So you can go back and listen to that. He's also on the podcast talking about um, The Big Goodbye. He was talking about the Hollywood and oral history just recently. Uh, and now he was talking about, oh, okay, you, you get it, you get the. So basically, there are two episodes with Sam, the most recent with a Hollywood and oral history being discussed, and one from about a year ago in which we talk about his Chinatown book. And I want to talk to him about his Blake Edwards book at some point in the future. So me and, me and Sam will definitely be getting together like Freebie and the Bean. I also want to point out, um, I mentioned my brother uh, liking Top Gun. I very much meant my brother of the 1980s more recently and i'm sure he's uh he's uh, become much more of a a film watcher and a film lover and i'm saying this of course because he also listens to this podcast and i don't want him to think that i am lumping him in as some sort of um guy who only watches films if they've got fast airplanes in i'm thinking back to the 1980s um so yeah and hi fran if you if you are listening thank you very much for listening thank you to Elia atkins as ever for providing the music ali howard for providing art and encouragement and thank to you thanks to you listeners um kai is a particularly exceptional and enthusiastic listener and the english also always 
always encouraging, always great to, to see those retweets and those tweets. Loads of people, uh, Ian Killick, I shouldn't start naming them because otherwise I'll offend people who don't get, don't get mentioned, but uh, loads of people who, who really, honestly, without their encouragement, uh, well, I would still do it, but I would feel sadder while I was doing it. Okay, so that's enough from me. Um, hopefully, uh, I'll see you next week. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.